The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. The scripture reading today is from Galatians 1, verses 10 through 17. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. For I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people. So extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who had called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be Praise to Christ. Be to Christ. Thank you, Lena, for reading that passage of scripture for us. Good morning slash afternoon, everyone. Uh, welcome to Christ Press. My name is Paul Lim. I have the pleasure and privilege of serving here as a scholar in residence, uh, which means that I get to preach and uh, teach adult Sunday school classes. And um, my day job, my full-time job is back at Vanderbilt. Um, I served there as a professor in the Divinity School and also in the Religious Studies and History Departments. And so it's always a very interesting kind of context for me. Uh, so conservative church and, and liberal school, and I find both these places quite uh, exciting and helpful as well as frustrating. So it's uh, always a good thing to be caught in the middle, I guess, in some ways. So um, as we look at this uh, scripture and, and preach from it and hear from it, let's uh, pray and then we'll um, see what the Lord has to say. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for your presence in our lives. Although we fail and falter in many ways to experience you and to exalt you, you have called us unto yourself in this worship service. Our prayer this morning is that you will open our hearts so that we may not just hear the word read and proclaimed, but listen and engage with it, even wrestle with it, so that we will come to know you a little bit better. Lord, in our short journey of life, the best thing is to come to know you. May that happen even as we proclaim, listen, and take in, as well as participate in the Eucharist later on. In your name we pray, amen. So um, as this is the second sermon in our new series in Galatians, um, I thought it would be good as we're talking about living in freedom I thought it would be important uh, if we spend some time thinking about the nature, uh, occasion, and consequence of Paul's conversion, the apostle. Uh, as uh, this uh, scholar from Yale named Kenneth Scott Lauderette said that the conversion of Paul was the most important conversion in the history of Christianity. Sometimes we think we know what the conversion entailed, and as we look further, there are some very, very interesting things about Paul's life before he came to know Christ and after he came to know Christ as well. So I'd like to share some of that before, um, and that'll help shed light 
on some interesting and obscure passages uh, in today's reading, actually. And also, if you're the type of Christian uh, who like to who like to look up different passages of Scripture during a sermon, you're in for a special treat because we'll be going all over the place. We'll talk about people in places such as Phineas. I don't know if you know Phineas. Uh, not this uh, heavy metal uh, band, that's Christian heavy metal band that's called Phineas, but someone in the Old Testament. Elijah, I think someone familiar to many of us. And a place called Arabia and biblical texts such as Numbers 25, 1 Kings 19, John 2, Acts 8, 26, 28. You get the picture. And of course, today's text, Galatians 1, 10 through 17. So before we talk about the three main points of today's sermon, let's ask this important question. Why was Paul so upset at early followers of Jesus? He talks about it a little bit today, but let's raise that question. Why was Paul so upset at these early followers of Jesus? To help answer that, it's crucial to know something about the nature of Judaism that both Jesus and Paul were familiar with and within which they were raised and through which they worshipped the God of Israel. That's an important point, I think. That did you know that both Jesus and Paul were Jewish? Jesus never left the synagogue. Paul, in his defense, both before Agrippa and many others, claimed the fact that he was a Jew whose Judaism was refined through his encounter with Jesus. But both of them claimed Judaism as part of their religious well, their religious identity, in fact. So let's talk about it a little bit, shall we? Because as Christians, in many ways, we feel that Judaism has nothing to do with us. And in some ways, that's understandable, but in some other ways, that is an unfortunate slippage. First of all, Judaism was a religion of hope. This hope was predicated on the covenantal faithfulness of Yahweh, Israel's God, which meant that the promises that God had made to Abraham that God had made to David, and the new covenant promises prophesied by Jeremiah, as we read earlier, formed the sum and substance of Israel's national and ethnic hope. So it was a religion of hope. It was hope for the restoration of shalom, peace for Israel, and also for the restoration of kingdom of Israel, thus kingdom of God. Secondly, it was predicated on the belief that the resurrection from the dead was going to happen in the final day. So Judaism was a a religion of the resurrection of Jesus, uh, the resurrection, in short. In other words, Judaism of Jesus and Paul had a clear end goal in mind, or put it in that sort of $2 word, eschatological or apocalyptic elements. Jewish hope was not just for the restoration of kingdom to Israel here and now, But it was also about the final victory of God over the forces of darkness and evil. And the core component of that was actually resurrection of the body. That they believed in the resurrection of the body. It wasn't just a spiritual thing. It wasn't just for here and now. That uh, at the core of Judaism was this restoration of all things, including the resurrection of the human body. Paul, the apostle, before he became the apostle, firmly believed all this. The firmness of this religious conviction was such that he was truly zealous. And I want you to think about the word zealous throughout our sermon today because that's an important word. That's actually a Greek word that is transliterated into our vocabulary. Zeal or zealous or zealotry, these are all kind of uh, uh, related nouns. 
from related words from the Greek word zelotes, right? Zeal. So uh, we'll look at that in just a little bit. But uh, he was truly zealous in his devotion to Judaism. He was more particularly devoted as a Pharisee, right? Pharisees believed in the, the resurrection. Pharisees took it to the next level in terms of their religious devotion. They get a bum rep within Christianity, but in actuality, they were much more concerned about following the Torah and loving God, which Yahweh had graciously given to Israel as a, a way of walking with God now that they were saved by God's amazing grace. Paul simply did not believe, Paul as a Pharisee, did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the resurrection of Jesus had any consequential significance to Jesus being the unique Son of God. He didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He didn't believe that the resurrection happened. And so he was firmly opposed to these two pivotal doctrines, uh, cardinal doctrines of Christianity. In fact, his thought this was the height of idiocy and insanity and idolatry. Therefore, as a good Jew in his religious zeal, it was only right and necessary that he actively tried to prevent this gangrene from spreading further. Right? So I think this is a very important thing to remember, that he was convinced that he was doing God a great favor, that he was following God and loving God. And we'll see how there is a long tradition of that. Therefore, for Paul, early Christians or early followers of Jesus were perverters of true Judaism. Especially for the Jewish followers of Jesus, he believed them to be perverters of true Judaism. Therefore, he felt that it was job to go and persecute. Let's look at Acts 26. I want to read what he said before King uh, Agrippa, because this is a court testimony, and this is pretty important. Acts chapter 26 uh, verses 9 through uh, f uh, later on. Uh, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He's very clear about that. And this, that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished and arrested, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. Did you hear that? This is his testimony before King Agrippa. He's talking about his former self, and he's very, very um, succinct and clear and methodical about who he was and what he did. He says he really was believing, he believed that he was doing God a huge service by doing this. And we'll see how his life turns around, okay? But as a result of a completely unexpected turn of events, which included temporary blindness, as he walked from Jerusalem to Damascus, which, by the way, friends, is exactly the same distance. Actually, I checked it out last night. It's exactly the same distance of walking from Nashville to Knoxville, okay? So if you were to walk from Nashville to Knoxville, that's the distance that Paul was traveling, which, by the way, wasn't actually regarded as a crazy long distance back in those days. So walking from Nashville to Knoxville in order to go and hunt down Christians was what Paul was doing and actually was en route to do. He comes to have a radically different understanding of his own self, his religion, and his God, and how the person of Jesus, whom he was persecuting, was the pivotal figure in Israel's redemptive history, indeed for all people. 
In fact, it is not an exaggeration to say that Paul was the one who universalized and put it on a global stage by his theology that extended the scope of salvation from Israel to every nation in the world. So his changed theology looked like this. Paul now had a theology of fulfillment, not a replacement. That's a very important point, that Paul believed that Israel still had a role to play in God's economy and for Gentiles. And that's Paul's warning against Gentiles in Romans 9 and 10 and 11. Israel is still important for Paul's theology of Gentiles too. His, his was a theology of hope, hope for the world, hope for Israel. His was a theology of resurrection, which was grounded in the resurrection of Jesus. So that's kind of revised tremendously, that the resurrection has the grounding in the resurrection of Jesus. His was a theology of Jesus as both the beginning and end of history, as creator and consummator of it all. Here's a surprising statement for some of us. You ready? Paul never stopped being a Jew. Paul never stopped being a Jew. He says, you know, I am a Jew. I happen to have encountered the Messiah, and I believe that all of our longings and aspirations are fulfilled in Jesus. So it's perhaps uh, important to note that. So the relationship between Paul and Judaism, as well as Paul and Gentile Christians, and how this is connected to Paul and the gospel of Christ, this is a complicated relationship, as you can imagine. There's this thing called the parting of the ways, and I think you should think about that as good Christians. You know, when did Judaism and Christian kind of part their ways? And I think it's very important for us to think about it, learn more about it, when and how did it happen. And Paul, the apostle, was a pivotal figure in this, especially his writings which reflected his theology of fulfillment, although some had taken it to mean a complete replacement and rejection of Judaism. So that's an important question. Was Paul a Messianic Jew or was he a Christian? This is certainly an anachronistic question, but the spirit of this question is nonetheless quite important. I would tend to lean in arguing that Paul was a Messianic Jew, that he really believed the Messiah had come. So I sometimes wonder, I mean, I really do, like, what would Paul say if he came to our church? Would he find it interesting? Would he find, like, this is exactly my way of worshiping God? And that's a very, very important question for us. So thank you for bearing with me in this preliminary discussion. Now then, let's talk specifically about today's text, Galatians 1, 10 through 17, under these three points. Three points are as follows. The first point, so we're letting Paul speak to us, the apostle speak to us. The first point is, I'm not a people pleaser, neither should you be. Paul says, I'm not a people pleaser. Second point they will look at is, I didn't make this stuff up. I got it straight from the source. Third point is, I am the OG Arabian Nights guy. Or what did he do in his three-year wilderness retreat? So OG Arabian Nights, I didn't make this stuff up. I'm not a people pleaser. So let's get to the first point, shall we? Paul says, I'm not a people pleaser, and he therefore tells us, neither should you be. I get this from verse 10 of today's text. If you have your uh, text, let's look at it. And if it is okay to shoot it up on the screen, that'll be great. But if not, that's okay too. So Paul says in verse, uh, yeah, right there, for I, am I seeking the approval of man or of God? And that's a very, very important question. Or am I trying to please people, right? Please man, because, and then notice this very important uh, point. At the bottom of it all, uh, so yeah, in the middle, third line, 
if I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. So let's develop that a little bit, delve into it a little bit. We know by now that Paul's authority and authenticity as an apostle was often disputed. Did you know that? So people really didn't think that he was a legit guy. Many of the religious leaders were scared of him. Many of them thought that he was a fake because he used to persecute the church, and now you're saying that you're a true apostle. So they're often asking, how legit are you? Demonstrate your authenticity and authority to do all of these things. That was a very, very important thing. In other words, they're asking, what is your credential, right? What is your credential to do this? If you go to like a, uh, uh, yeah, what is that, the notary public, right? You get some things to be notarized. They, they better have some, you know, kind of authenticating thing that says that they are kind of notary public, right? And if you go to a doctor and get some kind of medicine, you don't want to just come, let's say you come to me for medical advice, they'll be absolutely crazy because I have no authority to do it. So we realize that in many endeavors in life, we want people to have the credentials and authenticity and authority to do it. Paul was often disputed to have been a fake. And this is an ongoing debate throughout Paul's life. Just wanted to, you to know that. So both more legit religious leaders as well as fake apostles found Paul's apostolic origin somewhat of a dubious thing. So we find him trying to ascertain and reconfirm that he's legit. Here in Galatians, that's what he's saying right there, actually. We find Paul doing the same thing. So right off the bat, if he ever felt attacked or misunderstood or maligned for whatever reason, you're actually in good company because both Jesus and Paul experienced that a galore. They were maligned, they were prejudiced, they were mistreated, they were said, you know, bad things were spoken at them and against them. So let's look at the last sentence of verse 10. If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. What does it mean? So I think as he's trying to say something like this, that to, to be a servant of Christ, it means more than anything else that people will actually, there has always come this point of trying to please people. And he says, you know what? If pleasing people is what it means to follow Jesus and be a servant of Christ, I would not be one. I shouldn't be one. So let's look at it this way. As Nashville, as most of us know, is changing a lot, so is the demographic makeup of people moving to this fabulous city. My wife and I and our son moved here in 2006, so I've been here since our 14th year of living in Nashville. And in those short span of 14 years, the city has changed a lot. We got traffic problems now. I don't think it did exist in 2006. It was there, but wasn't too bad. But like almost everywhere, you know, you follow your... Um, you know, Google Maps, or what's that other thing that actually tells you on the, whatever that is. You know, we try to follow all of these kind of apps to get to these places better. We have a traffic problem, a galore. And also that means there are people moving in here. And I think, you know, in 2006, you know, people are asking, our realtor is asking, where do you go to church as a way of trying to figure out where you might want to live and this, that, and other. But that question is often now seen as offensive because a lot of people moving into the city of Nashville may not be. So I was talking with someone recently, and he said something to the effect of, I had no idea how offensive Jesus and Christianity would be until I tried to talk to this friend of mine from out of town, he said. I think there is something intrinsic to the DNA of the gospel of Christ that is simultaneously infuriating and liberating. Let me say that again. There's something intrinsic about the gospel of Jesus Christ that is both infuriating as well as liberating. Why is it infuriating? Because it tells you at the core of it all 
that you can't do it yourself. You can't do it. From the Apostle Creed, Apostles' Creed to the Nicene Creed to many confessions in the medieval and the early modern period, in the theologies of Luther, Calvin, Wesley, whoever, Christian gospel basically says self-help won't get it. Right? I was recommended this book, um, I think something about you're a badass. I don't know if you know that book. It's like New York Times bestseller. We were talking about it in one of the meetings that I had with a bunch of people at Gotham and IFW. And book is You're a Badass. And it's a self-help book, like, you know, bestseller. Well, I looked at it. I was like, there's some helpful things here. But what I'm saying is this. If I rely on your badass book to help me to get to where I need to go, then that is actually a terrible way. Self-help books are absolutely no good and worse yet they will lead you away from Christ, the real deal. The infuriating part of the gospel is you cannot do it yourself. Like no matter how hard you try, no matter how you revise the thing, you can't do it. Right? But then there's also the liberating thing. Precisely because you can't do it, what you need to do is just come as you are. Don't try harder because trying harder will make you actually dig your hole deeper so the liberating thing simultaneously is that just as you realize that you can't do it yourself, just as you realize whether you read a badass book or some other book, you cannot actually do it. So come to that point of recognition and just surrender. Say, I can't do it. Here I come. So the Apostle Paul says, you know what? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. Sycophancy and gospel proclamation don't go together, he says. The gospel of Christ says that the core of the human dilemma is that we think we can save ourselves, but if so, Christ came for nothing at all. The infuriating part immediately leads to the liberating part. Properly understood, the gospel of Jesus Christ proclaims that there is no room whatsoever for ethnic superiority or racial superiority, economic superiority, or ethical superiority at all. There is no room for that. Meaning this, in other words, the gospel is the great flattening, bulldozing power. It is not one group of people that is superior to another. It is not that the rich are more blessed by God than the poor. It is not certainly that one's ethical behavior puts one closer to God than another in their preparatory steps to be accepted by God. That's why Paul says that now that I understand the nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ, I'm not trying to be a people pleaser, nor should you. He was going to waste his shot, in other words, by trying to win a popularity contest among Jewish religious figures. I think, you know, um, Kanye West is uh, someone that I think is pretty popular among us. Uh, just released a new album called Jesus is King. My son told me about that, and he played a few of those songs, and they, look, they sounded pretty cool. But the one that I truly love is one that I also learned from my son called Jesus Walks. It's from his first album. And some of you know that song. How many of you know Jesus Walks? Oh, all right, that's good. I'm, I'm, I'm not alone. That's great. All right. And the verse has some, this, uh, this, some of the lyrics has some relevance to this point about Paul's declaration that he's not a people pleaser. So Kanye West, let me, let me read the lyrics here. It says, you know, to the hustlers, killers, murderers, drug dealers, even the scrippers, Jesus walks for them. To the victims of welfare field, we're living in hell here, hell yeah, Jesus walks for them. And he continues, I ain't here to argue about his facial features or here to convert atheists into believers. I'm just trying to say the way school needs teachers, the way Kathy Lee needs Regis, that's the way I need Jesus. And here comes my favorite part. So here go my single dog, radio needs this. 
Let's say you can rap about, you can rap about anything ex except for Jesus. That means gun, sex, lies, videotape. But if I talk about God, my record won't get played, huh? Well, if this take away from my spins, which will probably take away from my ends, then I hope this take away from my sins. Then bring the day I'm dreaming about. Next time I'm in the club, everybody's screaming out, Jesus walks. I realize that Kanye West is a polarizing figure. Some of you like him, others don't like him, and I don't know enough about him to have an opinion. I just like this song a lot, Jesus Walks. Because Jesus walks with the losers and dealers and people who live in living hell here. Jesus walks with them. And I think it is important to recognize, I think, you know, to, to sing about Jesus in a popular setting in a non-Christian music world, that's probably not an easy thing to do. Well, so Martin Luther was another figure, similar to Kanye West in terms of popularity, but the profundity of his teaching was probably a little bit deeper than Kanye. This is what Martin Luther said about this in his commentary on Galatians. I know it's a kind of weird segue, but you get what I'm saying. From Kanye to Martin, right? So, but when I first took over, so this is what it says in the Galatians commentary, when I first took over defense of the gospel, I remember what Dr. Staupitz, his teacher, said to me. I like it well, he said, that the doctrine which you proclaim gives glory to God and God alone and none of it to man. For never can too much glory, goodness, and mercy be ascribed unto God. These words of the worthy doctor comforted and confirmed me. The gospel is true because it de deprives men and women of all glory, wisdom, and righteousness, and turns over all honor and all glory to God alone. It is safer to attribute too much glory unto God than unto men, and that is the safe way, he says. That is a safe way. That leads me to my second point. I didn't make this stuff up. I got this straight from the source. Let's look at verses 11 and 12 again. You can shoot it on the screen. That would be great. Which is where I get this point from. It says, I want you to know, okay, so, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. And next screen it says, for I did not receive from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Get that? What is he saying here? He's saying that I didn't get it from anywhere else. I didn't, get this, I didn't make this stuff up. I wasn't taught by human beings. I got it straight from the source, namely Jesus Christ, and the revelation that I had. Here's Paul defending his gospel because he was attacked. That he began to proclaim and did not sit well with some Gentile preachers of the gospel who are requiring something additional from their Gentile converts. As we heard from Pastor Scott last Sunday, Jesus plus something is nothing. Jesus is the only thing you need, whether you're Jew or Gentile, but requiring something else from these new converts, such as circumcision or eating certain things and not eating certain things, or observing certain days to be holier than other days, Paul said this is actually a, a deviation from it and therefore an abomination. I don't know about you, but the more I study Paul, I don't know if I actually like him as a person. He was a great apostle, but he was like so intense, right? He was like always too intense for me to deal with because he was often, more often than not, my way or the highway. Like, I mean, about things that are important, my way or the highway, great. But about some other things, he got in fights with a lot of people. If you read Acts, and if you, you will see what I mean. Paul, I prefer guys like Barnabas. I like John. I like Peter. I like Luke. 
Paul, I don't know. I mean, though I'm named after him, I guess, but, you know, it is what it is. I don't like me either in many ways, all right? So there you go. But here's something that is really interesting. He talks about it in his defense of himself before Agrippa. It's a, it's a trial situation, and this is what he says in chapter 26 of Acts. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We fell to the ground. I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? And listen to this. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. The Lord replied. That's it. That's the revelation. And you say, is that it? There's got to be more. Well, let's unpack this. I would dare say that that is actually a sort of a zip file or concentration of the message that he was going to proclaim. What is it? Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And that, if properly understood, is the gospel for Paul. Let's unpack it then. We see three Ps of the gospel of Christ. We see here in this short verse, pathos of God. Jesus' radical identification with those who are persecuted. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Notice Jesus didn't say that it was Jesus' followers that Saul was persecuting. Jesus said, no, you're persecuting me. When you go after these little people who are convinced that I am the way and the truth and the life, you're not just persecuting little people, you're persecuting me. Jesus is saying, I identify with the lost situation of my people so much that I have come to live with them, I have come to die for them, I have come to be with them. Secondly, the providence of God. The story of Paul's conversion, Saul's conversion into Paul, shows that God is actively involved in the daily life of the people of God. Thirdly, the purposes of God. Through Ananias, someone that we will read about in the book of Acts as well, uh, the one who lived in Damascus, the one who healed Paul's temporary blindness, the Lord tells Paul that he will be an apostle sent out to proclaim the good news to the Gentiles, and that also the suffering will be something familiar to him as well. Pathos of God, God's identification with us in Christ. Providence of God, God's involvement with our lives. Purposes of God, that God's purposes will go from strength to strength, though human beings might try to fight against it. Paul authenticates his apostolic authority by insisting that his gospel is straight from the source, Jesus Christ, that he got it as a revelation. And that was really important for Paul to authenticate and bolster his apostolic authority. So let's move to the final point of our sermon. That is, I am the OG Arabian Nights guy. What, or what did he do in the three-year wilderness retreat? I don't know about you, but the more I study the New Testament, and I, I have this kind of ambiguous relationship with Paul, because he wrote about half of it anyway, so if you're going to study the New Testament beyond New Testament and Acts, and you're going to read a lot of Paul. And one of the most intriguing things about what Paul says about his life is this part that we read here. If you can shoot it up to the last part of the verse, uh, the text. Right, look at the last two lines. Well, let's look at the five last lines. I did not immediately consult with anyone after his conversion, nor did I go up to Jerusalem. Now, why is that important? Jerusalem is where it's at, right? Religiously and, and all that. So if you're going to be a true apostle after your conversion, what you must do normally is 
to go up and let the people know, hey, I actually changed my mind, and I'm actually this. But he didn't do that to those who were apostles before me. Instead, what did he do? But I went away to Arabia and returned again to Damascus. So what happened there? He didn't go to Jerusalem. He had a short stint in Arabia. I don't know about Arabia, but I don't know about you, but when I first read this as a 21-year-old guy, the only Arabias that I knew was Saudi Arabia, or when I was younger, when I was in my middle school years, elementary school years, I read the Arabian Nights, right? Arabian Nights. And so I was like, wait a minute, Paul went to Arabia, what did he do? And I got really curious. And there's actually no scholarly consensus on what he did. Some said, oh, the Arabian thing was only a short stint. Others say it's three years, and there's no clear consensus. We don't really know what he did, and we, we're going to try to work it out together in today's sermon, okay? So I'm going to have a, I have a little hypothesis that I want to present before you, and I think that'll be helpful for us to think about not only Paul, Paul's journey, but our journey to God in Jesus Christ. So let's put our thinking caps on and journey with me. So I get this thing about, you know, this, he's the OG Arabian Nights guy from verses 13 through 17, as is up on the screen. He says that I used to persecute the church of God with such intensity, and he actually tried to destroy the church. And his intensity was matched by, actually indeed stemmed from, his advancement in Judaism. He said that he was extremely zealous for the traditions of his fathers. Remember the word zeal, zealous? It comes from the Greek word zelotes, and that means that it is excitement about some, something or real commitment to something truly important for the person. But when God was pleased to, Reveal his son in me, Paul says, so that I might preach him among the Gentiles. What did he do? Does he go and learn the true way from his apostolic superiors in Jerusalem? No. He says that my immediate response was not to consult any human being. So what he's trying to say is, look, I got this from the source, right? I got this from the OG Jesus, and I got it, and this is legit. Please, let's, let, me, let me just say that, Paul writes. Instead of spending nights in Jerusalem... Paul says, I spent nights in Arabia. Then his zeal led him to nearly destroying the church, at least trying to do it. We must realize also, friends, that his excursion to Damascus, as he talks about it in the court testimony, was not the first time Paul was part of a team designed to destroy this new heretical movement within Judaism called the Way. Now, I want us to introduce to two people that you may not be familiar with. One, I think, very unfamiliar. Second, maybe familiar. The unfamiliar one is Phineas. Phineas, right? Who is that? Phineas. Well, Phineas is not, again, this Christian metal band, but it's a dude that we read about in Numbers chapter 25. He was Aaron's grandson, and, uh, and his dad, Eliezer, was the high priest. So he comes from a very good religious family. And we read in Numbers 25 that there was a kind of a problem that arose because many of the Israelite men began to have sexual relations and marrying uh, Moabite women. In Numbers chapter 25, an Israelite man brought a Midianite woman into the tent of meeting, a, a no-no kind of act, and they were actually making love. Then Phineas saw it, Moses saw it, and Phineas, what, is, what does he do? Do you know that story? If you don't know it, it's a very fascinating story. Then he takes up a spear and goes and actually kills both of them in the tent of meeting. All right, this is kind of a morbid, cruel story in some ways, but he, it, we read about it as an expression of his zeal and religious zeal to do right by God. He kills both of them, 
And then it said in the, in the biblical text that the plague against Israel stopped as Phineas did that. The zeal, so Phineas in Israelite religion was seen as the prototypical figure of someone who was excitement for God led to stopping of the plague by doing this. So Phineas almost is synonymous with zeal for the Lord. In the same way, Elijah was a celebrated prophet who had two phases in his life. In the first phase of his religious zeal, what does he do? Do you remember? He brought down, he had a contest against the prophets of Baal, right? And they tried to, and they wet the, 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 the altar with, they had all these animals on the altar. And Elijah says, you know what? You call down your God to bring and fire and consume this. And the prophets of Baal try to do it like they cut themselves and self-mutilation and they go crazy and it didn't happen. And Elijah says, you know, please, Lord, let your will be done. And then, boom, the fire came and consumed all of it, licked up the water even. So Elijah's zeal, after that, do you remember what he does? He says, you are fakers. Let's have you arrested since you're false prophets. We're going to actually just have you executed. So there's a mass execution as an expression of religious zeal. I realize it's kind of morbid, and please pardon the, the, the cruelty of it. But both these Phineas and Elijah were seen as figures of religious zeal that did right by God because there's so much apostasy and problems. So within Israel's religion, there's a celebration of the figures who actually did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. Phineas and Elijah, their religious zeal stopped further problems within Israel. In the same way, Paul was, and be 450 years before uh, Paul, there was this Maccabean revolt against the, those who had taken Israel's kind of land, and they, 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 they were fighting against it in the Maccabean revolt around 176 B.C., and then they were all martyred. So it, they were seen as, and they were, there was a real kind of a, a valorization of the martyrdom of these Maccabeans, even in the early Christian traditions as well. So martyrdom and dying for your country and putting, expressing your zeal for your religion was really part and parcel of Israel's uh, religion or what they would call Second Temple Judaism. Are you with me so far? And Paul fits into it. Paul says, I was so zealous for the traditions of my fathers. That means he would do anything, anything really, even in terms of dragging people out of synagogues and having them arrested because they were actually deviating from true religion. So Paul saw himself in that way. But after he encounters a living Christ, what does he do? He goes into Arabia. In the same way that Elijah, after he encounters God in that stillness, he goes and rests. And so Elijah, I mean, Paul uh, saw his religious zeal expressing itself in fighting against heretics and deviations from true religion. But after he encounters, he went away, not to Jerusalem, not to consult with human beings, but to Arabia to rest and to be kind of rejuvenated and restored in the Lord. So here's a very interesting kind of comment made by N.T. Wright about the connection between Phineas, Elijah, and Paul. I found this truly helpful, so I want to share that with you. He writes, he says, this is what Paul would say. I stood in the tradition of zeal going back to Phineas and Elijah, the tradition of, that the Maccabean martyrs so nobly exemplified. Indeed, my persecution of the church was inspired by exactly this tradition of zeal. But the God of Israel called me, like Elijah, to step back from the zeal and to listen to him afresh. When I listened, I heard a voice telling me that the messianic victory over evil had already been won, 
And that I and my fellow Jewish Christians were a true remnant, saved by grace and marked out by faith in Jesus Christ, apart from ethnic identity and apart from works of Torah. I therefore had to renounce my former zeal and announce the true Messiah to the world. What are you zealous about? What are you excited about? What are you committed to? Paul says, my zeal previously had expressed itself in seeking the wrong thing. I thought I was doing the right thing, but as I encountered living Christ, I had to go through a program of restoration and rest, even detoxing. So he needed time to rethink his religious zeal and devotion. He needed to be with the Lord, resting and refocusing. So what about zeal? Isn't that interesting? Let me close with this. That in John chapter 2, verse 17, it's about Jesus cleansing the temple. His disciples actually remembered that is written in Psalm 69, that zeal for your house will consume me. And he said, you know what? They wrote, like this is the zeal for the house of God that Jesus had led to not slaughtering of another person, but self-sacrifice. He gave himself up. That zeal for the house of God led to Jesus Jesus' own martyrdom on the cross. And that Jesus is the one who is pursuing us out of his zeal. He is, he is calling us. He is equipping us. He is sending us. Just as God knew Paul from before the birth when he was in mother's womb, God knows us from ever before we were in the world. Jesus walks, as Kanye West says. Jesus walks with you. Jesus walks for you. And Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. So God is the one who is calling us, equipping us, and also sending us out of God's grace. Won't you participate in this journey that God is calling us to? Let's pray together. Gracious God, we thank you for calling us and equipping us and sending us in Jesus Christ. We thank you that whether they are elementary school students or high school or college or graduates of college or people looking at retirement or much past it, that as this word has been proclaimed, may you, the Holy Spirit, do that wonderful work of making the, these words of God planted in their souls, causing them to grow, causing them to ask questions, causing them to express their zeal in resting and uh, trusting you in all their lives. Thank you for this. We love you, and we look forward to that consummation of our journeys as we participate some, in some of it in the 